This is a podcast from Minute Media. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. This is part two. Yeah, we're going to talk about casting today. Super excited to get into that with you. You always have the best information on casting. Where else are you going to get that little nugget of information that said if the dad from Flipper hadn't had a motorcycle accident, <laughs> we would not have got Blade Runner. You are not getting that anywhere else. I yeah. promise you that. Yeah, that was a, that, that was a rabbit that hole. Was a that, 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 dive, that was a deep dive, man. That was quite a rabbit hole. Well done. <laughs> Let's get into part two, E.T. versus The Thing versus Blade Runner. Okay, Jason, we have an executive producer for this episode. Yeah, his name's Chris McMillan. Yeah, Chris got to our Patreon page. We've talked to you about our Patreon before and some of the prizes you can get for the various levels. We are starting a brand new thing that Jason and I are super excited about. We are going to have... Each month, a bonus episode that is exclusively for our Patreon subscribers. And we are going to be going through the one-hit wonders of the 80s and beyond in every single episode. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Jason is a genius. He called me with this (laughs) idea. I'm like, this is why... I partnered with you on this because you are a genius. Thank you. We started looking at the One Hit Wonders and I'm like salivating at how many awesome songs out there that were the only hit by some of these folks that I'm just, I'm dying to dive into. Well, let's do, it's going to be fun, man. If you would like to be a part of that, please check out our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Shirley Podcast. And for as little as five bucks a month, you can join in on those super secret episodes with us. Hey, we are going to drop one this month. We're going to start with a bang. It's the video killed the radio star. It's going to be awesome. One hit wonder by the Buggles. Come check us out on Patreon for that exclusive episode. We sure appreciate it, Chris. Thank you so much. We are deeply grateful. You the man. Okay. So listen to this. So E.T. made $792 million. In 1982. In 1982. Yeah. At the time, it was the most money ever made by any one movie of all time. Yeah. Okay? So let's put that in perspective for just a second, okay? So Blade Runner made, yeah, $40 Okay. Okay? Not profit. Total. Total. Right? Right. The thing made... 18, 17? 19 million. 19 million? budget was 15. Okay. So that means they made about 4 million bucks. And if we're talking about a giant movie like that, that's not enough. No. Basically, you've got to make three times your budget to can be considered a hit. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Now, follow me on this, okay? Huh? This is summer of 82. Conan the Barbarian, Annie, Rocky Three, Poltergeist, Star Trek Two, Grease Two, Blade Runner, The Thing, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Zapped, and An Officer and a Gentleman. Those movies were all released the summer of 82. Mm-hmm. Their combined total at the box office is $762 million. That's still $30 million less than E.T. made by itself. Wow. So E.T. was top of the box office for 12 weeks. Yes. You just mentioned a ton (laughs) of incredible movies. Yes. But you posed the question to me, which of those movies knocked E.T. out of the top spot? And I was like, Rocky Three? Nope. No. I was like, Tron? Nope. You're like, uh, best little whorehouse in Texas? <laughs> nope. 
What was it, Jason? What movie of those that you just listed knocked E.T. out of the top spot? You may have caught it because it was the one that really doesn't belong. It's Zapped, starring Scott Baio, the stupid <laughs> teen comedy that he can lift up girls' skirts with, like, telekinesis. It's a boob fest. It's a boob <laughs> That's fest the movie that with knocked... Heather Thomas. Let's all take a moment and just appreciate Heather Thomas. That's the movie that knocked E.T. out of the number one spot. Now, E.T. came back and regained it and bounced around number one for the rest. It was in theaters for almost a year. Yeah. I mean, I saw it probably five times in the theater. Took my mom, took my dad, took my sister. I mean, I was there every time. You mentioned E.T. on our very first episode when we were talking about Michael Jackson's thriller. E.T. is one of the great cinematic experiences I've ever had in my life, okay? Yeah, yeah. and it's I mean, you got Star Wars. You got Raiders. I told you when I my mom covered my eyes when the yeah. the propellers. Yeah. E.T. and Die Hard. That I mean, that's it. Yeah. Those are my top. I could not believe what I was seeing. All right. And I wasn't alone because it made $800 million. Yeah. Okay. We ready to talk casting? Sure. Let's talk casting. All right. Let's flip back to the thing and talk casting. You're going to have to sleep sometime, McCready. I'm a real light sleeper, child. Okay. So The Thing is an ensemble movie. All guys. No females. Except a little tiny cameo that you may not notice. Now, of course, John Carpenter had made several movies. One of his kind of go-to actresses was a lady named Adrienne Barbeau. Yes. We might have mentioned her inconsistent zipper height when we did our Cannonball (laughs) Run episode. She was a well-endowed young actress that ultimately ended up being his wife. And as it turns out, she's the one female part in this movie as... The voice of the chess computer that McCready is playing chess against that he ultimately, I believe, drowns with some J&B whiskey or something. Checkmate. Checkmate. She's a bitch. That's exactly right. Adrian Barbeau, the voice of the computer. Go back to our Cannonball Run episode <laughs> where she dazzles Burt Reynolds with her cleavage and her zippers. I'll take care of this one. Well, hello, hot pants. I don't suppose you have a driver's license tucked down in there somewhere, do you? Yes, officer. Okay, so Kurt Russell was the last guy hired, which I find fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I told you that we have a... We, the, those guys fell in love on the set of Elvis, right? Uh-huh. They, of course, went on to make Escape from New York, which is a fantastic movie, and was kind of the reason that he got greenlit to do some of the other movies that he did, including The Thing. By the way, Escape from New York, fantastic. Love it. Did you know that, like, they, it's a total satire of all the old Clint Eastwood movies? Like, those... The Dirty Harry and the the Man with No Name. I did movies. not know that until you pointed that out. But I mean, it's spot on. If you if you had those guys be a little bit uglier and a little bit quieter, that is Snake Plissken. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You you take the guy who was the Disney hero, give him an eye patch and a murderous <laughs> attitude, and that is that's how you burn that image to the ground. Well, speaking of the Man with No Name, yeah. Clint Eastwood was one of the guys considered for the part of McCready. That would have been funny in 1982. Right. Right. Who else have you got? Okay. Kevin Klein was one of the guys. He was kind of an unknown at the time. Yeah. But Carpenter really liked him. Okay. okay. Christopher Walken, Jeff Bridges. Ah, uh, now they would work together on Starman, which you mentioned. Yep. Yep. Nick Nolte. Okay. Sam Shepard. Okay. Peter Coyote. Who is, of course, an E.T. He is. Tom Berenger, Brian Dennehy. Okay. Is that for me? <laughs> that's Big Tom. <laughs> no, son, that's for me. 
<laughs> Bill Lancaster was the screenwriter. Uh-huh. The person he had in his mind when he was writing the part of McCready, yeah. Harrison Ford. There you go. Husband of Melissa Matheson, star of Blade Runner. Now then, flip to Childs real quick. Okay. Childs is one of the last guys left. The beans are the fricks. <laughs> 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 Go back to our something about Mary episode. He is Mary's dad. Mary's dad. Yeah. Ernie Hudson had this part. Oh wow. Until Keith David read for it. Ernie Hudson was, of course, the fourth Ghostbuster. Yeah. Right? If there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything you say. I have seen that makes you turn white, right? Yeah. Bernie Casey and Carl Weathers were considered for this. Okay. Apollo Creed, that'd been cool, right? Yeah. Blair. Now Blair is the part played by Wilford Brimley. Good morning. I'm Wilford Brimley, and I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes about diabetes. Wilford Brimley. Here's an interesting tidbit about Wilford Brimley. Yes. He was bodyguard for Howard Hughes before he became an actor. Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, the aviator. Howard Hughes, the movie producer. Howard Hughes, the inventor. Yes. The crazy Howard Hughes. Wilford Brimley was a bodyguard for him. That's amazing. Yeah. Donald Pleasance was originally supposed to be Blair. Yeah. I love Wilford Brimley in this movie. He's so good. And when he's out, they put him out in the shack, you know, and he's like, I feel better now. I'd like to come inside. And there's that noose that's hanging right next to him. don't explain it. I literally wrote it down as I'm watching the movie. I'm like... What's with the noose right here? Like, they are not saying a word about the noose. I feel a lot better now. I'm going to come inside. Okay? All right. Oh, my gosh. Crazy, right? Right. Jay Leno read for a part in this movie. Okay. So did Gary Shanley. Okay. T.K. Carter was actually a stand-up comic, and he was hired. So maybe it was one of those parts. Okay. Richard Manser plays Clark in the thing. Clark is the guy who handles the dogs. Yeah. He's the dad in License to Drive. Yeah. Right? He turned down a part in E.T. He was also the dad in Encino Man, by the way. Oh, yeah. Encino Man. He's great as the dad. I like him. Was he the guy... Crap. Was he the guy who interviewed Tom Cruise in Risky Business? Man. Oh, dude. If I'm right about that, you owe me a Coke or something. Okay. Hold on. And yes, he was. Wow. Now, it's my understanding, Joel, that you would like to attend Princeton. He was Rutherford. That's fantastic. Great job. He read the script, and they didn't know which part they were going to cast him in. They wanted him. They didn't know. And he was like, I asked for Clark because the idea of a guy who had more love for the dogs than he did for the humans was fascinating to me. Interestingly, Richard Manser and Keith David decided through rehearsals uh-huh. that because they were the two biggest guys there, yeah. they weren't going to like each other. This is Keith David's first film role. Right. Fascinating. Love it. Okay. The part of Gary, Jerry Orbach, oh, yeah. was considered for the part of Gary. Be our guest. Baby's dad. Baby's dad from Dirty Dancing. Yeah. And then finally, I mean, I, we could go through all these guys, but... I'm going to throw a couple out when you're done. Fuchs, the guy who plays Fuchs, mm-hmm. is Gary from Gary's Old Town Tavern from Cheers. Oh my gosh. That is a deep cut, my friend. Well Thank done. Thank you. Well done. Thank you. That is great. Okay. So I'll throw a couple out there for you. You okay. got Richard Dysart as the physician, right? He's the doctor that goes to the old Norwegian. He's the guy who gets his hand eaten off when he's. Yes. Yeah. He gets, he, he he gets, gets his, his hands arms, eaten off. He gets his yeah. arms bit off. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> bitten off, excuse me. I recognized him from L.A. Law. Like, I watched L.A. Law, and he was, like, the main prime partner on L.A. Law. Okay. What weirded me out was he has a nose ring in this thing. I don't understand why the guy who is the M.D. is the one with the nose ring. All right, and then you also, as Windows, and I remember you telling me a story about Windows and why he's Windows, but... As Windows, you have Thomas G. Waits, who had been in the Warriors before this. He was classmates at Juilliard with Robin Williams and Christopher Reed. And How about that? Keith David. So tell me why Windows is called Windows. I can't remember. I love it when you tell me a story... And then, I forget. and then you forget, and I get to tell the story like it's my okay. story. It's wonderful. Okay. So he showed up to the set wearing sunglasses, and he was like... From now on, I want you to call me Windows. And that's how he got his name. Like, he's like, I'm going to wear sunglasses the whole time, so just call me Windows. Yeah. And that's how Windows became a character. Oh, okay. I forgot I told you that story. Yeah. He also gets his head eaten off. I did hear all, the, all these guys talking about how it was like summer camp, right? So you get these 12 actors. Mm-hmm. They all fly them out to the middle of nowhere. Canada. Canada. Yep. Stewart, British Columbia. Yep. Okay. And they've got a... You know, they stay at the hotel or whatever, and they've got to take this special road. And every time they go up there, it's like they're taking their life in their own hands. But they ha- they all had a ball. You know, I mean, you're, you've got flamethrowers, and you're in Canada, and you're all there by yourself, and you're having a great time. I thought that was interesting. But the one actor I wanted to point out that may have had the best performance, according to John Carpenter now. Okay. The dog. Oh, yeah. The dog. Jed. Jed. Yeah. Jed, the dog actor, who is the thing. He's the first thing. Yeah. We know it's the thing because yeah. it's the Norwegian dog that has come into the camp. Right. And he has to creep down the hallway, stop, pause, look around, not look at the camera. Right. And then slowly go. He's like, John Carpenter was going on and on about the dog. Well, he was half wolf. This dog was half wolf. <laughs> yes. And one of the things that when you get a half wolf mix is they don't bark like normal dogs bark. That's right. And when something is going wrong, they stare it down. And that's exactly what he did in all of his shots that it needed it. But he wasn't real comfortable around human beings. Like you you can see him when he has to go under the table and people are weirded out by the dog. He's uncomfortable there too. But all they had to do whenever he had to stare at the wall in that weird way was just a little bit of a signal to show that something was wrong, and he would stare it down. It's fascinating. Yeah. By the way, Kurt Russell told a story about when they pulled into, they shot parts of it in Canada, yeah. parts in Juneau, Alaska, yeah. and parts in LA. They shot it actually on refrigerated sets, yeah. which is pretty cool. Kurt Russell says 105 degrees outside. And so anytime they went to lunch, they had to like take off all their ski gear. Right. And then, you know, walk in the 105-degree heat to come back in and put all their coats on. Yeah. The guy who played Clark, Richard Master said eventually they just said, heck with it, and they would just wear their parkas out. Because <laughs> he's like, I'll be hot for like two minutes as we're walking through, and then we'll walk in an air-conditioned room, and it'll be fine again. He goes, people were looking at us weird when we were wearing our parkas. Then I came in with a bullet hole in my head, <laughs> and people like literally moved away from my table. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Kurt Russell said when they pulled up to the studio to begin filming the thing, there's a giant sign that said, Welcome Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds. <laughs> the big thing at that moment was Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Yeah. Done with casting on the thing. Let's move on to Blade Runner. Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. They're a benefit. It's not my problem. So not a big cast in Blade Runner. Listen to who they wanted for Deckard. We already talked about how this is pre-Raiders of the Lost Ark. They don't advertise for killers in a newspaper. That was my profession. Ex-cop. 
Ex-Blade Runner. Ex-Killer. At that point, he had been in, I think, Force 10 from Navarone and Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. And that's pretty much it. American Graffiti. American Graffiti. I mean, he had a big part in American Graffiti. Yeah. Okay. They wanted Dustin Hoffman as Deckard. Wow. At the time, like, he was their number one choice. And Dustin Hoffman was like, you sure you don't want a little more macho guy for this role? <laughs> yeah. Right? And so he went on to play Tootsie. <laughs> That's right, he did. Right? Yeah. So think in terms of Blade Runner being like a film noir, right? Oh, absolutely. 100%. So, so Philip Marlowe. Absolutely. Raymond Chandler. I mean. Very macho. Very, alcohol, yeah. Alcohol swilling, morally questionable guy. So sure. listen to the list of actors that were considered, okay? Yeah. Tommy Lee Jones. Okay. Gene Hackman. Yeah. Sean Connery. Sure. Jack Nicholson. Okay. Paul Newman. I mean, Chinatown, of course, Jack Nicholson. For right. sure. Yeah, okay. Right? I mean... These yeah. are yeah. little edgy, tough guys, right? A little older, but yes. Al Pacino, Burt Reynolds. Paul Newman did The Verdict that year. Yes. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Christopher Walken, Martin okay. Sheen. Yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger. What? Arnold freaking Schwarzenegger. So Arnold Schwarzenegger was considered for Deckard in The Blade Runner. Yep. But ultimately would be in another Philip K. Dick movie. Total Recall in yeah. 1990. Seven, eight years later. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. So... They had some trouble with casting. Hampton Fincher envisioned Robert Mitchum as Deckard. Yeah, I think Robert Mitchum had played some of those Philip Marlowe type of guys in the past. Yeah. Yep. All right. Let's talk about Roy Batty for a second. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Roy Batty is the Batty, if you will, the leader of the replicants. Right. He's Rudger Hauer. Rudger Hauer. Yeah. Okay. So this was the one role that they had no problem with. Ridley Scott had seen Rudger Hauer in a movie called Turkish Delight. Okay. Okay. Is it about dessert? No, it's not about dessert. <laughs> I told you. Yeah. So I, I, I watched, I got on YouTube and I Googled the Turkish Delight movie trailer. And I watched 30 seconds of it. And I was so bored, I almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> If you get a boring trailer, you're in a bad spot. Oh, my gosh. It was like, I'm not kidding. It was like watching Lady Chatterley's Lover or something like that. Okay. A 70s era, softcore, romantic Cinemax movie. Right. Okay. But Ridley Scott loved him because he was Aryan, right? He was what? Aryan. Aryan? Aryan. As in blonde Nazi, hair, blue-eyed? blonde hair, blue-eyed. Okay. They even went overboard and they peroxided He loved him hair. for the part because of that, not because... <laughs> Let's be clear here. I'm going to say that again. Man in the High Castle. No, I think it's hilarious. Oh, my gosh. He loved him because he was Aryan. Okay, this is awkward. No, he loved him for the part because he was Aryan. That's I right. I gotcha. I That's gotcha. Right. Now, from what I understand, uh, Rutger Hauer showed up with his hair dyed that bright blonde. Like, it was it was sting. Bleached, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was the police blonde, right? Yeah, that's right. And then, like, also in, like, this fur coat and kind of looking punk rocker-ish. And Ridley Scott was like, oh, my dear Lord, what have I done? Yeah. But he it was, was all just so a, awesome. It was just a mess. It was just a mess with him. Look, we'll get into this later. Yeah, but yeah. Rutger Hauer and his, his performance and then Harrison Ford. Yeah. Mono y mono. Yeah. So good. So let's talk about Rachel really quick. Okay. They hired Sean Young. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Sean Young. She was very who young. Was, who was the almost... Vicki Vale. Was the she was almost, almost Vicki Vale, Almost yes. Vicki Vale. Fell off a horse. That's right. She she hurt her... What, did she break her wrist or something like that? I don't know. 
She got hurt and she couldn't be Vicki Vale. But then she stormed Tim Burton's office dressed in a Catwoman suit <laughs> and wanted him to hire her back. And they had to throw her out of the studio. Wow. You ever heard that story before? No. Wow. So Sean Young. Very young. Beautiful. Uh, bird-like, I, I'd say, in this movie. She's just very precise and very... Okay. You with me on that? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. But, I'll, but I'll go. I'll, All right. I'm, I'm following behind you. Okay. You lead the way. All right, good. <laughs> so here's who they want. Here's the other people that they looked at. Okay. Nina Axelpod. I don't know who that is. Yeah, I looked at her. I didn't really recognize her. Okay. Okay. Barbara Hershey. There you go. And Philip K. Dick wanted Victoria Principal. Wow. How about that? Okay. Okay. Also, Grace Jones was considered for the part of Rachel. Okay. Grace Jones. Did a Bond movie instead? No, thanks. <laughs> Not a fan of that one, huh? No. Of you two, kill terrible. Okay, Pris. Hmm? That's the part that Daryl Hannah plays. Yes. I think, Sebastian. Therefore, I am. They wanted Debbie Harry from Blondie to I play see that. that, for sure. How about that? Yeah. They also looked at Monique van de Ven, who was the girl that Rudger Hauer was in love with in Turkish Delight. Ew. All right, To play then. Pris. Okay. Might as well, if it worked, just bring him back as boyfriend and girlfriend? Sure. Okay. So, the part of Leon Kowalski. Wake up. Time to die. Brian Jones is the guy who ends up playing him. Yeah. He's the guy who takes the Voight comp test at the very beginning. Yeah. Oh, man, what a great beginning scene that is. But yes, his portrayal in this one is a good one. He was a, he was in a ton of stuff in the 80s, and I think he passed away like a pretty young age. I think he was only in his early 50s, maybe, when he passed away. I think he was in Tango and Cash. I think they put a grenade in his mouth with Kurt Russell. Yeah. yeah. He was in The Fifth Element as well. Okay. They had decided to hire this guy named Frank McRae as Kowalski uh-huh. until Ridley Scott's secretary told him that Brian James scared her. Yeah. Frightened well, her. He's scary. He is scary. He's, he's intense. He's, yeah. And he's got the crazy eyes. And he does have the crazy eyes. And Ridley Scott's like, that's enough for me. We're going to hire him. Yeah. And then Zora was played by Joanne Cassidy. She was in Roger Rabbit. The waitress? She's like yeah. Eddie's girlfriend. Is that a rabbit in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? That's her. All right. You got it. Nice. And then the role of Gaff went to Edward James Almos. It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? From Stand and Deliver. Stand and Deliver, Miami Vice. Yeah. American Me. Okay. He's tough. He's intense. Great job. I thought this was hilarious. M. Emmett Walsh plays Captain Bryant. Mother scratcher. <laughs> he's in Raising Arizona. Yeah. And he's in The Jerk, right? He's in a, he's in a couple of the Coen Brothers movies, but yeah, he's great. He's the guy that shoots at Steve Martin. Steve Martin's like, he hates these cans. <laughs> yes. Right? Naven R. Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. So here's the funny part. So Ridley Scott said, hey, for this role, could you smoke? And M. Emmett Walsh didn't smoke, but he's like, well, okay. And really, Scott... Kept having take after take after take. He kept smoking and smoking and smoking until he got sick. Oh, no. <laughs> he got sick of the cigarettes. And he made a comment in the press that Ridley Scott needs to be hung up by his balls. Oh, my. And the producers reamed him out for that. He got in trouble for that. Huh. Done with casting on Blade Runner. Okay. Now to do casting on E.T. He's a man from outer space. And we're taking him to a spaceship. Well, can he just beam up? This is reality, Greg. Maybe the most fascinating casting, even though it's a small cast. It's a small cast. Now, so, of course, here we go. Another connection. Yeah. D. Wallace was in The Howling, which was the movie that had Robert Bottin's first big werewolf transformation, where he was the main guy on point, so... I kind of dug Rob Bottin in, in our Howling episode uh, for making her look like an Ewok. <laughs> 
at the end. Remember that? Yeah. I mean, that we figured we found out that that was at her behest. It was, which was you know that was the wrong choice there. But <laughs> but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Let's go ahead and keep going, right? Okay. So Henry Thomas was hired as Elliot. You can see his audition on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. But it's not my choice. The president asked me to come here and get him. I don't care what the president says. He's my best friend. And you can't take him away. Steven Spielberg had seen him like in commercials and stuff, but hadn't seen him really speak any lines and wanted to know if he had some acting ability. He said, right look, but does can he act, right? And so he had him come in to... Do some acting. Yes, and this is the, this is the cue that he gave him. He's he was like, okay, they've come to take away your best friend. There's a man at the door, and he is there to take away your best friend, and it's your job to stop this big grown-up law enforcement guy from taking your best friend. Yeah. When you watch this, Steven Spielberg says that he says, okay, are you ready? Henry Thomas says yes. Immediately, knock at the door. We're here to get whatever, whoever it is. Right. And Henry Thomas, he starts breaking down and he's like, you can't take him. No, yeah. And you see the tears start to flow. And my gosh, if you have a soul in your body, (laughs) you are shedding tears in 10 seconds of performance from this kid. It's true. It is amazing. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. Jack Fisk was a friend of Spielberg's. He had done a movie with Henry Thomas and suggested him. One of the other boys that auditioned, so there's hundreds of boys who auditioned for this role. Keith Coogan was one of the guys who auditioned. You will remember him as one of the kids in Adventures in Babysitting or Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Okay. He did yeah, some yeah, stuff. Yeah. Okay, that guy. I yeah. know that guy. Okay, okay. gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Henry Thomas also auditioned in a Indiana Jones outfit. Really? True story. Okay. The part of Gertie, played by Drew Barrymore. Could be a monkey or a a orangutan. A bald monkey? Is he a pig? He sure eats like one. This one I got a story on. Go ahead. So she came to audition, not for this movie, but for Poltergeist. Remember, we got a little pretty little blonde girl in Poltergeist. Yep. She auditions for Steven Spielberg, and he says, you're not right for the part. But I think there is a part in another movie that I have that you're perfect for. Uh Uh-huh. And she was like... I didn't care. I was just like happy to hear that I was right for a part. Right. You know, so I didn't get the movie I came to audition for, but that's how she became Gertie in E.T. You know, he was impressed when he started talking to her. He was asking her about herself and stuff like that. And she's like, you know what? I'm the leader of a punk band. (laughs) And he's like, that sounds like Gertie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. She's five, what, five years old maybe when they're making this movie? Six at most? Yeah. And she's already got the imagination that, hey, I'm going to, I'm, not just I'm going to be in a rock band, but I have a rock band. Right. And she detailed it like I'm the singer. There's drummers. It's, it's She gave, and he's like, this is the kid's imagination is on point. We need to have her. Oh my gosh. She's so cute too. Yeah. And she comes from, I mean, she comes from acting royalty. I mean, oh. John Barrymore is one of the most famous actors of all time. And it's her grandfather, I believe. Yeah. But... She nails it. She's perfect. She nails it. There isn't, I don't think, a cast member in this movie that is not perfect. Henry Thomas knocks it out of the park. Yeah. Okay. Juliette Lewis and Sarah Michelle Geller also auditioned for the part of Gertie. Okay. How about that? Good. Okay. Part for Michael. Robert McNaughton was the guy hired. Where's the playground? It's near the baseball. Where's that? I don't know. Streets. Mom always drives me. Son of a bitch. Yeah, 
you know he uh, he came out with another movie in 1982. Did you know that? What? The Electric Grandmother. <laughs> That's right. It keeps coming up. I don't know how these things happen, but if you will remember, the, Linda Gottlieb, the person who produced Dirty Dancing, the movie that she made right before she signed on to do <laughs> Dirty Dancing was The Electric Grandmother. And yes, Robert McDonald. How does that movie keep coming up? <laughs> it's like a bad penny. Oh, it's a good movie. We should watch it. Okay. Robert McNaughton auditioned eight times for this. Ultimately, he got it, and he nails it. I mean, the children's performances in this, out of this world. Yeah. And Spielberg has said, they're not acting. Because I just told them a story, and it's just them being them. Yeah. Real quick, Mary, who is their mother, that I never knew her name. I okay. think their last name, according to the script, is Taylor. Okay. This okay. Both news to me. Yeah. All go. right. So Dee Wallace yep. got the part. When she goes to conferences and conventions, she's always referred to as E.T.'s mom. Right. Which is kind of funny. <laughs> uh, they offered the part to Shelley Long. Oh, okay. From Cheers. Yeah. Plays Diane in Cheers. Okay. Now, we mentioned that Peter Coyote, he plays the part of Keys. I got I got a story for you on this one. Go. So we talked about how Peter Coyote was one of the considerations for Indiana Jones, right? Yes, that's right. So he tells the story of his Indiana Jones audition, right? Okay. He comes in, his his agent has got him this audition with Steven Spielberg. He's excited. He's got a fedora that he wears. He's all decked out in the right gear, you know, and he's behind the curtain and his agent introduces him. He's like, Mr. Spielberg, I would like you to meet Mr. Peter Coyote. And he says, so I come out from behind the curtain and what you can't see is that these lights that they've got shining on you all have legs on them. And I did not <laughs> see the legs. And so I catch one of these legs. I go careening across <laughs> the stage on my face and Steven Spielberg's just looking at me like, who in the world is this horrible person? <laughs> That's hilarious. But apparently it had enough of an impression <laughs> on him that he thought this will be the perfect guy for the mysterious adult with the keys. Yes. Because the, the first half or more of the movie, all you see is his crotch. That's true. <laughs> he said, my ex-girlfriend, after she saw the movie, she's like, I recognized you immediately. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> All right, now then, the part of E.T. Okay. It's a combination of a few people. Yeah. Okay? One you've heard of and one you haven't heard of, probably. Well, it's more than that, because you've got voice and you've got the body and hands and all yes. of that. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's fascinating. So, the voice of E.T. Yeah. Deborah Winger, we know, recorded every line of E.T.'s dialogue. She was a friend of Steven Spielberg. She had come by to see how things were going. Deborah Winger has this kind of deep, husky voice. Yeah. He's like, you know what? Let's go ahead and let you record all this Voices of E.T. Now, also, they combine her with a woman named Pat Welsh. Right. Pat had been an actress a long time ago. Like, was in some old, like, 40s That's right. movies, right? Yes. She smoked two packs a day, and she was in the store when Ben Burt was there buying something. Ben Burt, who is the sound designer for every Star major, Wars and, yeah, yes. Everything. He heard her talk, and he's like, hmm, this lady might be perfect for E.T. Yeah. She had that little voice. She was paid $380 a day to be E.T.'s voice. Wow. So E.T. is usually an animatronic thing, right? Like Because yep. obviously the, nobody has a neck that thin. And he, he said he didn't want it ever anybody to ever think this is a guy in a costume, right? Yes, yes. And so in different scenes, you have different 
folks inside the workings. There was a lady who wore gloves. She was like, I just happen to have very long fingers. And so she became the perfect hands for ET. So what you'll get a lot is her like laying on her back and having her hands up doing the glove work next to the animatronic ET as like a million other guys. I mean, like there are literally dozens of guys doing all of the working processes for his eyes and his neck and all of these other things, but his hands remain real. They are gloved hands of this lady. But they also found a kid who had lost both of his legs and he also was in it and he would, he would his hands, which he used to get around, he would walk with his hands, went into the feet of E.T. So when you see E.T. getting drunk and he's like going through the kitchen and then suddenly just falls yeah. flat on his face, that is a little amputee kid who played the part of E.T. in a costume. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, we mentioned before, but there is a scene that you can see on YouTube of Harrison Ford as Elliot's principal. You don't ever see his face, but his voice is clear as day. Unmistakable. And he's kind of bawling him out for getting drunk at school. Yeah. I see you fine young people from... Good homes, every advantage, your whole life laid out in front of you. And Elliot's like, I'm sorry, sir, it'll never happen again. Yeah. That's Harrison Ford. Yeah, at one point, Harrison Ford turns to look out the window as he's talking to him, and suddenly Elliot's chair like starts floating up to the ceiling. And, of course, it's this beautifully timed thing where it comes back down right as he turns back around, and Mary D. Wallace comes in, and they all leave. Yeah. Two more people I want to mention. Go ahead. C. Thomas Howell mm-hmm. plays Tyler. We made it! One of the buddies. One of the buddies. Yep. This is his film debut. He then goes on and he does The Outsiders and one of my favorite movies, Secret Admirer. That part was also auditioned by Ralph Macchio, who they became buddies in The Outsiders. Yeah. I think they're still friends. Yeah. But the one I really want to mention to you is the pretty girl that Elliot kisses. (laughs) Yeah. That is Miss Erica Alaniac. Yeah. If you've ever seen the movie Under Siege. Or Baywatch. Or Baywatch. Or, you know... Some Playboys. I don't know what you're talking about there. What is Playboys? (laughs) Some sort of book or something? Right, right, right. (laughs) She goes on to become a Baywatch actress, and she's, I mean, she was the babe in Under Siege. Yeah. Google search. Yeah. So that's going to do it for casting for E.T. Okay, let's talk 2436 movie posters. You have three of the best movie posters of the 80s, without a doubt. I'm about to blow your mind, bro. Okay. So for E.T., our artist is John Alvin, who is very well known in the movie poster world. Passed away several years ago, but he's got the Star Wars reissue, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, a ton of old movies. His first movie poster that he did was because Mel Brooks was unhappy with the movie poster they did for Blazing Saddles. And so his first movie poster was Blazing saddles. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. And then he also, of course, did Young Frankenstein because Mel Brooks was he became his go-to guy. Sure. So John Alvin is one of those huge names. He's an icon in the movie poster industry. And so Steven Spielberg came to him with this idea for the poster for E.T. Now, E.T. has a few different types of posters that we're all familiar with. One of the most familiar is the big moon with the silhouette of them on the bicycle flying across 
you know, the yeah. scene from the movie. The Amblin logo, right? Right, yes. That became the Amblin logo right. years later when that company was formed, right? Yes, yes. But there's another iconic poster where the two fingers are touching, where you've got the little child's hand and the E.T. hand, and they've got that glowing, it's that ouch moment. Right. And so that's the one that John Alvin did. And it was Spielberg's idea, and he said, hey, I'm kind of looking for this Michelangelo creation of Adam kind of thing. And if yeah. you look at it, that's what the hands yeah, are doing, right? Yeah, I see it. Yeah. And if you look at the little kid's hand, it's far too little of a kid. That is not Henry Thomas's hand. It's John Alvin's daughter, who was six years old at the time. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So he created that image at Spielberg's request to be a creation-like image. I love it. Which is great, because we'll talk about later on how similar this is to some biblical stories that uh, we're all familiar with. There's some interesting parallels there to be made. Yeah. So tell me about the Thing poster. Okay. I'm going to blow your mind with this. Okay. So the Thing poster is, I I think if there is one original piece of artwork from the 80s, that Mm -hmm. iconic poster that I would take, it's the Thing poster. For me, that's it. Okay. Wow. I just love it. It's one of those when when you look at it, you're like, what is happening here? This snowman is something's happening to his face. It's like this bright shining thing. He doesn't have a face, and you're like, wow, what is this? I have to know what's going on in this movie. So it was made by Drew Struzan, another icon who we absolutely adore. Yeah. This guy has done everything. I mean, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's yeah. done a billion movie posters. Exactly, yeah. Okay, but he wasn't the original artist. So the original artist came up with a poster that John Carpenter hated, okay? Uh-huh. And the studio didn't like it. Yeah. And so they called Drew Struzan and they're like, hey, Drew, we need a movie poster. Are you busy right now? And he's like, no, I, I can do a movie poster for you. And they're like, okay, because we need it tomorrow. <laughs> He did this in 24 hours. Oh, my gosh. So he's like, okay, great. What's the movie about? And they're like, ah, I'm not really sure. (laughs) He's like, well, who's in it? And they're like, well, we don't really know that much about it. He's like, how am I supposed to do a poster? And they're like, well, we know it's a remake of The Thing from Another World, the 1951 movie. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that's a big difference from what we get in 1982. Oh, yeah, for sure. So Drew Struzan took that idea. This is a remake of The Thing from Another World. He actually got in his ski gear, went outside. His wife took the pictures of him in his ski gear uh-huh. until he found one that he liked. Yeah. So Drew Struzan not only drew this poster in 24 hours, yeah. one of the most iconic posters of the 80s, but he's also starring in the poster. That's him. That's awesome. All right, what do you got for me on Blade Runner? Okay, so Blade Runner... They called up Drew Struzan. Yes. And they said, I want you to make a poster. Yes. But they weren't happy with it. And so they called up John Alvin. Oh, my gosh. And John Alvin did the poster in his John Alvin style. If you look at Blazing Saddles or Harry Potter or any of, you know, the hundreds of John Alvin where they've got all those heads, you know, around. Yep. yep. You look at the Blade Runner poster, you're like, oh, same guy, right? Yeah. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, listeners, you won't be able to see what I'm about to show Jason right now, but you're familiar with the old Blade Runner poster. Yes. I'm going to show you this one. Have you seen this before? I have seen that one. So this, if you're listening, if you go to the 2007 Final Cut, there have been a couple of different remakes of Blade Runner where they they did a director's cut, and then in 2007, they did a Final Cut, and they released it on DVD. Well, at that time Ridley Scott contacted Drew Struzan again and he said hey 
I actually liked your poster better, but the studio guys said they wanted to go with John Alvin's poster, but I'm about to do this reissue. Can I use your poster instead? And so he had just had these base drawings that he had used, and they're so similar. They're so similar in style because you've got, I mean, you've got Deckard as the big head there, but it's this collage of different faces from the movie. And so Struzan takes his old artwork from 1982 and creates the new poster for 2007. You're blowing me away. I love both of those posters. They're fantastic. They're both iconic. Hey, E.T.'s got two iconic posters. Blade Runner has two. Yeah. The Thing, I think, has one, but they're all amazing. Yeah. The other thing about The Thing is that the font for The Thing, like in the posters that I've seen, usually you've got this kind of standard impact style font, but there are also posters that have the kind of jagged letters that you get from the opening credits of the movie. Yeah. And there's a... There's a great story about how they came up with that particular thing, which we'll talk about when we do our special effects part of things. But I have seen some posters that have it on there. But what I like so much about the Thing poster is it's a mystery who that guy is, who that snow-suited person is, which goes, even though he didn't know what happened in the movie, it goes right along with the key element of the movie of we don't know who's the Thing and who's not. It could be anyone. Yeah. This bright shining light is a faceless man who could be my best friend or an alien who wants to kill me. The person who made that poster did not know the plot of the movie and yet still nailed it. And I just discovered this. I haven't seen it yet, but there is literally a 10-minute video out there. It came out the same time as the final cut, 2007, called Promoting Dystopia, Rendering the Poster Art, featuring... John Alvin and Drew Struzan talking about creating the poster art for Blade Runner, past and present. Love it. Love it. Two of the best. And people said these movies weren't connected. People said these movies weren't any good. Yeah, I know, man. I know. It's crazy. You gotta be effing kidding me, (laughs) to quote a line from The Thing. Yeah. Okay, I've got a few tidbits before we get into the big questions. I love it. Let's go, man. All right. So, talking about The Thing, Keith David broke his hand in a car accident the day before shooting began. Okay. So, like, the first half of the movie, he's always hiding his left hand. Huh. They actually had to paint his cast his complexion Uh for certain scenes. Right. It's kind of like Lost Boys. Yeah. Where uh, Kiefer Sutherland breaks his hand on the motorcycle accident, and then you see him, he's just wearing wearing gloves all the time. Yeah, weird glove the whole time, yeah. Okay. Carpenter calls The Thing part of his Apocalypse trilogy. Okay. You have The Thing. Yeah. You have Prince of Darkness. Okay. And you have In the Mouth of Madness. Okay. I haven't seen those other two. I have not seen those other two either. I've heard they're good, but I haven't seen them. Okay. One of the things they said was so difficult about the shoot of The Thing, Mm -hmm. they couldn't get any beer. What? They couldn't get beer where they were. Okay, so they're up in, was it British Columbia? They were up in Nowheresville, British Columbia. Right. So they, they found their set by trying to find a place that could pass for Antarctica, right? Right. And so in Antarctica, the only thing that you have are snow and mountains. That's yes. really about it. Yep. And so they found that spot, but there was this tree in the middle of the set. And so what they did, the big tower that you see on the set that they built is the one thing that's covering that lone tree is that right i didn't know that that's good and so also that's interesting because you know they had to have another set for 
the Swedes camp that they go and investigate, yes. right? Yes. So what they did is they filmed that scene at the end when they destroyed the camp at the climax of the movie by blowing everything up. Yeah. They were left with a bunch of burnt rubble. Well, that's what you see as the camp for the Swedes Brilliant. or the Norwegians or whatever they are. <laughs> They're not Swedes, McCready. <laughs> They're Norwegians. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. I did hear this, that a couple of Thing super fans yeah. went all the way to Stewart, British Columbia in like 2018, yeah. and they found bits of the set still there. That's awesome. They built it during the summertime and then just let the snow fall. Yep. Which, I mean, that's a cheaper way to go for sure, but they still, even in that, they still had to use fake snow for their blizzard scenes. Yes. Here's an interesting thing that they mentioned on the commentary. There are some underlying parallels regarding the thing and infection and not knowing who has it and who to be afraid of uh-huh. and the AIDS virus. Oh, okay. Which was happening. I mean, they started shooting in 81 and it was just sort of coming into awareness. Yeah. And people didn't really know how you got it, how it was transmitted. They didn't know anything about it. Right. But people were afraid of it. Kurt Russell's brother-in-law was the Norwegian guy in the helicopter who kept trying to shoot the dog at the beginning. Okay. That was Kurt Russell's brother-in-law. Okay. I think this is interesting. Windows can't reach anybody in the world, right? So he tries to get people on the radio. You're talking about the character Windows. The character Windows. Yeah, I got you. Yes, the guy yeah. who wears the sunglasses all yeah. the time. Yeah, When he tries to reach the outside world... Uh-huh. You can't get any response back? Yeah. John Carpenter has posed the theory that maybe it's because one of the Norwegian team left, infected, and the entire world is now gone. Yeah. That's interesting. It's kind of interesting to think about. So the end of the book, the, you know, where you the watch the skies thing, mm-hmm. you get the albatross the, the for the spring thaw or whatever. The albatross, they see it flying overhead, and it's coming from the same direction as the camp, which is probably where you get that watch the skies line interesting okay cool okay you want some tidbits on blade runner hit me all right in 1969 there was a young upcoming director who was interested in directing blade runner okay you know who this is 69 yep no martin scorsese okay wanted to film blade runner okay the final scene of blade runner is shot in a very prominent la building yeah, the uh, uh, Bradbury, right? It's the Bradbury building. Yeah. The screenwriters mm-hmm. went to Ridley Scott and said, please do not film this in this building. Every TV show known to man has been filmed in this building. Oh, yeah. And Ridley Scott's like, he says, nobody has filmed it the way I'm going to film it. Yeah. And you know what? He was right. He was right. Yeah, it looks completely different. Now, you, you recognize it. It is recognizable decor. And they, I mean, they even have it. It's the, You see the Bradbury written on it's the top of the plain hotel. plain as day, yeah. But, I mean, they're they're supposed to be in L.A. 2019, right? Yeah. But. 2019. Yeah. But the idea is, is that it is decayed significantly. It's It has become as cyberpunk as the rest of the world is. Yeah. I sent you a video. The Genesis Tonight, Tonight, Tonight video from the Invisible Touch album. was shot in the Bradbury building. Nice. When you look at the video, I'm like, it looks like Blade Runner. Okay, I'm going to blow your mind with this. You ready for this? Yeah, hit me. Okay. So one of the most sought-after props from the 80s was Deckard's pistol. Somebody actually stole it from the set. Okay. It was gone for 30 years and then cropped back up for an auction. Okay. All right, yeah. That pistol, it, it looks really cool, but it was actually made from a rifle. Okay. 
I can see that, yeah. They built it out of the remnants of a rifle. Okay. Which made it extremely heavy. Yeah. But it looks super cool. I love that gun. Yeah. It's it's big and bulky, but what you expect from a future gun. That's cool. I yeah. like it. So did they find it? What happened 30 years later? It just appeared like they couldn't find the prop anymore. It was gone. Whoosh. Whoosh. Vanished. It grew little gun legs and walked off. Somebody walked off with it. Uh-huh. And then it appeared like in 2015 for, a, for an auction. Huh. Let's talk about the company curse from Blade Runner. Have you heard about this? Well, I sent you, I noticed something as I was watching uh, he, as he was going by. And when I when I saw the first sign, I was like, oh man, these signs are all over the place. But I saw a giant sign for Atari uh-huh. on there. And then you hit me with this bit of info. So these are all companies that are prominently shown in the movie Blade Runner. Yeah. Atari. Yeah. RCA. Yeah. Bell. Yeah. Pan Am, uh-huh. Hi-Fi, yeah. Coca-Cola. Right. All, so of these, all of those have failed. That's the curse part, all, yes. except for Coca-Cola. Coke took a huge dive in 1985, though, when they introduced new Coke and got their butts kicked for about a year before they came to their senses and recovered. And, of course, what was the game that killed Atari? E.T. E. There yes. it is. That's exactly right. <laughs> okay, I'm going to blow your mind with this. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Stay with me on this now. Okay. So in the movie Alien, on the Nostromo, they use this bit of software that is also used in Blade Runner. Okay. Okay? Yeah. It's in Harrison Ford's floating car. Okay. Okay? Same software program. You can actually see it's the same screen. So that means that Ridley Scott's Alien and Ridley Scott's Blade Runner share a universe. Okay. Okay? You with me so far? I'm with you. Now then, we know that Alien and the Predator movies share a universe. Yeah, they do now. Yes. They do? Yeah. So that means Alien, Blade Runner, and Predator all share a universe. Okay. Okay? Now then, Terminator shares a universe with Aliens. Okay? Okay. Cyberdyne... Oh, right, right. Cyberdyne, yep. ...is yeah. involved in the Alien universe. That means that Terminator, Alien, Blade Runner, Predator all share a universe. Oh, wow. And... <laughs> <laughs> the Abyss. What? The Abyss is involved in it. The, they're all part of the same shared universe. Oh, my gosh. Some directly, some indirectly, but I think that's really cool. That that's, When I started putting those together, I'm like, holy crap. That's pretty neat. I like it. Good job. Okay. You're, you're going to have to trust me on this, but there is a cityscape scene where if you change the lighting just right and you put this in front of you, you can see the Millennium Falcon as a building. Really? Yes. It is in the background, and it's used as, like, part of the cityscape. Okay. One of the sort of underlying themes of Blade Runner is that maybe all animals are extinct. Yeah, that's the way that the the novel starts out, I believe, is that I think one of the first animals to die off are the owls, which is why the owl is important in Tyrell's office building. Okay. Well, Harrison Ford, actually, when he's questioning Zora, Mm -hmm. he asks her if that's a real snake. Yeah. She's like, are you crazy? I can't afford a real snake. You know, right, what, what right. are you talking about? Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things, he gets one of those scales. A scales piece of the snake. the snake, and it's got like a code on it. Yeah. Yeah. So when they zoom in, the actual picture that is in the movie yeah. is actually a zoomed in picture of a marijuana bud. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. It's not snake at all. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the idea is that the humanity that's left on Earth are kind of the rejects. Like everybody else, like all the pretty people, you'll notice this, virtually all of the people on Earth in Blade Runner are unattractive unless 
they're a replicant. We're going to talk about the big question <laughs> about who exactly are replicants and who are not replicants. All right. That's going to be in part three. Let's talk about the love scene for just a second. Okay. Say you love me. I love <laughs> Say you. you. Say it me. again. Mean it. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of, uh, it's very noir. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's a little rough. It is. But you're right. It is also very noir type of thing. It is very Philip Marlowe, Raymond Chandler. It's something you might see in a movie from the 40s. Mm-hmm. You know? Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Okay. James Bond. Yes. Oh, yeah. Goldfinger. My gosh. Um, I thought this was interesting. Alan Ladd Jr. actually chose the release date of Blade Runner. Okay. He chose June 25th. 1982. And he saw 25 as a lucky date. Okay. Because Star Wars had been released on May 25th. Right. And Alien had been released on May 25th. Uh-huh. It was not a lucky date for yeah. Blade Runner. I mean, in the long run, I guess, sure. But definitely not as far as the box office was concerned. Yeah. Philip K. Dick died before he got to see the entire movie. Yeah. I mean, he died in March. The movie didn't come out until June. So, yeah, he did not get to see the final product. He did get to see one shot that they showed him of the world of L.A. in 2019. Yeah. He felt like somebody had like come into his brain and extracted the image. David Wright was talking to us about this earlier today, about how cyberpunk this world is. And the way that they took the fashion of cyberpunk and created an entire cityscape that embodied that style is amazing. It is a flawlessly executed, beautiful, dirty, grimy, futuristic scene. It is incredible. And it's all practical effects. Yeah. No CGI. Nope. It looks amazing. Yeah. In fact, they shot it, I think, on the Universal lot. Mm-hmm. And they did it in just like one block of the Universal lot. Yeah. And Ridley Scott's like, I don't know if this is going to be big enough. <laughs> they were just very careful at how they shot it. And so it looks huge. Yeah. But it's just one block. Okay. Tidbits for E.T.? Hit me. All right. I thought this was really cool. E.T. was shot in chronological order. Okay. That was done on purpose so that it would help the kids' performance. And the kids' performance is incredible. We already said that before, but it's amazing. Well, there's one scene that they did shoot out of sequence that they wanted to get over early. I think we may have talked about this earlier. That first shot. Yeah. The kiss. The kiss. Let's get that. Steven Spielberg wanted the kiss done. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We did talk before about how Steven Spielberg worked on both E.T. and Poltergeist at the same time. Uh Officially, Poltergeist's director is Toby Hooper. Yeah. But there's a lot of people who said Steven Spielberg really directed that movie. Okay. In the closet scene in E.T., yeah. I say that. There's multiple closet scenes. Are you talking about the one with D. Wallace? When D. Wallace opens the door to the closet uh-huh. and there's nothing but stuffed animals, the camera pans, and there's E.T.'s deadpan face. Yeah. And the whole audience is like, ooh, there's E.T. Yep. And she doesn't notice. Right. She grabs a shirt or whatever off, off of the uh, clothes rack. Uh, that was Robert Zemeckis's idea. That Please. was his gag. That's lovely. Oh, that's great. Super funny. Did you know that Corey Feldman was supposed to be one of Elliot's buddies? No. Well, as they started working it, turns out they didn't need that buddy. They had everything they needed, so they had to chop that character. Well, Steven Spielberg felt bad about that, and that's why he is in Gremlins. Nice. One of the scenes that we'll talk about next week, I'm sure, when we have reaction, is the like the triage scene with E.T. Yeah. Those are real doctors noticed that i was looking through the cast and i was like oh my gosh these guys are mds some of them are mds and then there's also a phd in there as well 
Yeah. Steven Spielberg just said, hey, treat him like you would treat any other patient in the emergency room. Okay, he's flatlining. What do you do? Go for it. And that's why you have that real feel of it's, you know, actual doctors. He did great. Yeah. The communicator that E.T. builds to phone home. Yes. With the speak and spell uh-huh. and the bus saw, circular chainsaw saw. blade. Yeah. Or the, the, that's right, the circular saw blade. That actually worked. They contacted aliens with this <laughs> Yes. And that's how the ship came. I mean, how else are you going to film a spaceship if you don't contact the aliens well, first? That's how they got in at the very end. It actually worked. It, what do it, you mean it actually worked? It was a working transmitter. Okay. It worked as a transmitter. Like a radio? Yes. Okay. All right, that's it's acceptable. It's speaking spelled out into space, I'm telling you. I'm not a speaking spell oh. expert, but apparently... Phoned home. It it phoned somebody. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Let's talk about the huge mistake that Mars Company made when it denied M&Ms uh-huh. to be used as the candy in E.T., Man, that was that guy should have gotten fired. They thought he was too scary for kids. Oh man, I can see that decision being made. Like as as you know, somebody who works in a corporate atmosphere, you know, you're just like, ooh, I don't know. Do we really want to associate ourselves with this thing? Is that really going to be good? I mean, it's not like the M and M's, you know, went out of business. Went under. Yeah, right. I mean, they're still obviously very successful, but I had but some man, yesterday. They're the great. Reese's Pieces sales. I mean, went through the roof. Yeah, was it even a candy before? It was. It was like a new candy. Like Uh it was just on the market, and they said, "Well, you know, call Reese's and see if they've got anything." Hey, we got this new thing called we call Reese's Pieces. I know what I bought when I went to the store in 1982. Heck yeah, I still get them with my popcorn in the movies to this day. There you go. You know, in the novelization of ET, it's still M and M's. Interesting. Yep. And it didn't start product placement. There's like this urban legend that that's when product placement started. Mm Hmm. But, I mean, I think... No, we talked about it in our Jaws episode. The Coca-Cola signs yes. you see around there. So Superman. No, they, they, seven was... years before, at least. Yes. So, really quickly, Spielberg has mentioned that he's actually a plant. Like a plant being. I, I don't think that means that his, he's like vegetable matter, like the thing from another world. What he's talking about is that he is like a botany guy, but he's he's like a low-level, like he's the grunt who you send out to go pick up some flowers so that you so that the scientists, the real brains, can study them. So that's what the ETs are doing at the beginning of the movie, is there are all these grunts out there collecting specimens for the smarter aliens who are back home. Okay, well that's interesting because I heard him say that in reference to like his heart light. Okay. And they wanted it to look more plant-like than you could see what the inner workings of his chest. Yeah, because you don't want to, I mean, you don't want to have the M&Ms be scared away, right? I mean, this is the, <laughs> we don't want this to be terrifying. You don't want this to be, you know, oh my gosh, we can see the glowing innards of the alien. It just needs to be something simpler like a vegetable, I guess. But yeah, okay. Hey, that heart light was actually genius on Spielberg's part. It works like the dorsal fin in Jaws. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the movie, we still haven't got a good look at E.T., but his little red light, right, comes on. And we can track him. We see where he's going. We see what's happening. It's got a good dimmer switch. Yeah. It's like the world's worst evolutionary 
thing for a being who gets scared and is trying to hide and his light comes on. This is not quite an ocular emission. <laughs> it's, an inv- it's an involuntary light emission. I'm threatened and I'm scared. Here I am. By the way, you ever heard Neil Diamond's song Heartlight? Might say Turn on your heart light Let it shine wherever you go Let it make a happy glow For all the world to see Turn yeah. on You ever wonder where that song came from? You're kidding. No, I am not. You are kidding. No. It came from E.T. E. Okay, you just blew my mind right there, my friend. (laughs) You blew my mind. All right, well, I think that does it for this episode. Okay, Dee, we've got a Shirley Showcase this week from our buddies over at the All 80s Podcast. Yeah, this is Bill Bant and Jason Masick, who do a fantastic podcast over there. They are weighing in on their opinion of E.T. versus The Thing versus Blade Runner. Let's hear what they have to say. Hey guys, it's Jason and Bill here from the All 80s Movies Podcast. First off, we would like to thank you fine gentlemen, Dee and Jason, and surely you can't be serious for asking us to weigh in on this discussion. It is an honor, as Bill and I are both big fans of what you do and how you do it. So, we've been charged with the unenviable task of pitting these early 80s classics against one another. Well, let's get right into it, Bill Bant, and start with... E.T., the extraterrestrial. And you know what? I was trying to think of one word that would capture the essence of each of these three great iconic films. For E.T., I chose the word wonderment. I was eight years old, right in the midst of the phenomenon known as Star Wars. So when E.T. was released, I was already all about that sci-fi. It delivered. It's what Spielberg does best. It captures the essence of the small town atmosphere during this particular time period. And it's told through the childlike lens This view of wide-eyed wonderment and discovery, friendship, adventure. And of course, for me, a huge ingredient in this film is the unforgettable John Williams score. It's a character unto itself. We have the iconic flying bicycle sequence, E.T. phone home. I laughed. I cried. There's some scary moments, even. The bottom line is I left the theater having felt true escapism and entertainment. And I was a sap then, and I am still a sap now, for the saccharine Spielberg. I'll never ever tie that. Just give me more. Moving on to the thing. The word I've chosen is infectious. Bill Bant, this movie has Kurt Russell, who has great hair and always takes the story to the next level. This movie has Keith David, which means it has to be good, right? Yeah. Hell yeah. Keith David. This movie has incredible visual effects by Rob Botton that mostly hold up today. But at its essence, really, it's it's about the tension, the building up of tension, the pacing of this film. It really taps into the darkness of my imagination. What I love about this movie is that it makes me ask the question, what if, meaning what would I do if I were in the situation? There's the iconic Petri dish scene. I love this Ennio Morricone score, and it has one of the best endings of all time, Bill Ben. It's down to two survivors, and one may be infected with the alien virus, but which one will we find out? No, cut to black. And that's how you do a cliffhanger. Now, last but not least, we have Blade Runner. And the word I've chosen to encapsulate 
This iconic film is Immersion. Once I enter this world, I'm in. And once this movie is finished, it takes me a while to separate myself from it because it is a totally immersive experience. It's an assault on its senses in the best possible way. This is a dystopian future that's lived in. It's dark. It captures a real, real distinct feeling. It's a hard-boiled film noir, which I'm a sucker for. I don't know what a Blade Runner is, a Replicant is, a Nexus 6 model. I don't care. I'm fascinated. The setting, the landscape, the architecture, the overall design, the flying cars. This entire film is stunning. And at the end, it's about that finale between Rick Deckard and Roy Batty. And you've got Harrison Ford staring at Rucker Hauer as if it were his own reflection, facing his own mortality and, well, maybe possibly knowing what he is himself, depending on your interpretation of the movie. Now, for my judgment, E.T. will always have my heart and take care of the child inside me. The Thing. If it's on television, Bill Band, I gotta watch this movie because of its gripping, nail-biting tension. But ultimately, Blade Runner is the winner because of its lasting impact on cinema and this genre of filmmaking. Jason, great pick. Um, I couldn't sum up those movies any better myself. So for my pick, The Family Man or Child and Me, of course, it's going to go with E.T., the film nerd, film buff filmmaker in me of course is going blade runner but if you give me a bucket of popcorn and a nice comfy couch i'm popping the thing on and i'm watching that one i'm picking the thing thank you Shirley. you can't be serious dean jason thanks for uh letting us talk about these great movies okay well they're kind of hedging their bets a little bit <laughs> it sounds like they're picking all of them <laughs> i think if i got it right i think that jason is picking blade runner and Bill is picking the thing, although basically they all they picked all of the movies, which you can't go wrong. You, you cannot can't, go you wrong. Can't with go that's wrong. why this is a hard choice. They're all awesome. Thank you guys for weighing in on your final judgment. If you want to go over there and check out their podcast, they run an excellent podcast, All 80s Movies Podcast. Okay, guys, that does it for part two. Be sure to come back next week. Next week, we're going to talk about the big questions. We're going to ask ourselves, is Deckard a replicant? Is E.T. a Jedi? Is <laughs> is E.T. a Jedi? Is E.T. a Jedi? <laughs> Boy, you got it. That's it. You had me there. You don't need to say anything else. Okay. I'm coming back. For well, the next come episode. back next week. We're going to ask the big questions. Yeah. Is Childs the thing or is McCready the thing or are they both a thing? I think that's where you're going to go with all that. That's but where I was headed. Is E.T. a Jedi? That I mean, that's a teaser enough for anybody, I think. Hey, let's go. Part three next week, guys. <laughs>